sensations. Oh, that was a double breath in from both of us. We were just preparing on the diving board, like getting ready for a 10. Good evening, everybody. Good day, morning, afternoon. Welcome to Med Conversations, and you're listening to Rahul. And Abel. Today we're going to be talking about atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter at a dummies level. No, actually, this podcast gets pretty complicated at some point, so I apologize if you are struggling to follow what's going on. We'll try and flag the bits that are more advanced and keep those bits in there for people that already know a fair bit about the topic, because it's common. That's right. So to give you a little bit of a summary page, a contents table, first up, we're going to be talking about epidemiology, uh, pathophysiology will make its way in there somewhere, clinical manifestations and evaluation of these rhythms. Uh, diagnosis, and then finally management. So, so evolutionary structure. Absolutely. And we're going to have, for the first time ever, we're going to have a case intertwined <laughs> to give you to give you an idea of how this might work, play out in the real world. Come up with these ideas. Oh, this is groundbreaking stuff. So stay tuned. Uh, let's get started with the atrial fibrillation definition. Darvo, have you got a hot definition for me off the process? Uh, I do, yeah. So it's an arrhythmia characterized by disorganized, rapid, irregular atrial activation. That's right. And what does that lead to on the ECG, sort of the classic? So you'll see irregularly irregular RR intervals. That's right. So it's an irregularly irregular rhythm, the most common irregularly irregular rhythm, um, and you get a lack of P waves on there as well. So you mm. just get this fluttering baseline with irregular QRS complexes. What's atrial flutter? Is that irregular as well? I'm glad you asked. So atrial flutter is actually regular. Uh, it's what's called a rapid atrial macro reentrant tachycardia. Uh, so that basically means the macro reentrant part means there's a big circuit in the atrium where the electrical signal goes round and round and round and round like it's on a merry-go-round, and then occasionally it discharges off to the through the AV node down into the ventricles, and it does that with varying rates. So let's kick it to a case. Double, I think. You might want to read this case out. I got this vibe from. I didn't write it. So. Okay, I wrote this. <laughs> I will take full ownership. Uh, that's accountability, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, Anor, that's a traditional Azerbaijani name. In case any of you were wondering, a 67-year-old Azerbaijani female presents to your office within one week of intermittent palpitations, easy fatigability, easily tired, particularly when she's performing the traditional Samani dance to celebrate the arrival of spring. It's a well-researched researched podcast. Not into AF, but into Azerbaijan culture. Yeah, no, the <laughs> AF side of this like, is... That's just kind of... We're winging that part. But <laughs> this is a bit that we're, we're reading out. Uh, I knew it is an Azerbaijani name, but I don't know whether it's a female or a male <laughs> name. So right. that could be like calling a girl Thomas. We'll see um, when, when we get our Azerbaijani fans sending in hate mail, which they do anyway. They're very hard to please, the Azerbaijanis. But... Uh, uh, okay, so AF epidemiology is the most common sustained arrhythmia, um, and your incidence increases with age. So 95% of patients that have AF are over 60 years old, um, and it's slightly more common in men than women and more common in whites than black. So it's like a rich old white man's disease. That's how I think of it. Mm. The rich part being you have to be sort of rich to get there and not be sure. afflicted by something else. But can you shoot me some other risk factors aside from being a white old man devil? So the commonest risk factor is a hypertension, mm. which so has a relative risk of 1.42 off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Yep. And anything else you can shoot from the hip there for so us? So diabetes mellitus. Cardiac disease, particularly things which have a obstruction of the outflow tract, so that's things like Hockham um, and atrial stenosis. Mitral stenosis is a really common one as well. Mm. He meant aortic stenosis for anyone out there who's actually listening. Um, <laughs> what did I say? You said atrial stenosis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess if you had a stenosed atrium, yeah, don't get it. Um, obesity as well. Um, so every one unit of BMI you go up, you get a 5% increase in your risk of AF. Uh, and that's really do obese people have a larger left atrium, and we'll talk about why that's important later. And they also get diastolic dysfunction, something we can probably talk about in our heart failure podcast if you want to check that out. Um, obstructive sleep apnea as well. And you, again, you're building a kind of picture of a person, a metabolic syndrome, you know, type person, big it's neck. lifestyle related, isn't it? That's right. And the OSA would be related to the hypertension. So yeah. those, th- those two things are intimately intertwined Mm. then there's age like we mentioned before smoking alcohol and a dilated left atrium which can be a consequence of many things we will talk about stenosis for example exactly um so those are sort of the chronic risk factors or associations with af but what are the acute things that can precipitate this rhythm this heart rhythm coming on so the things that my cardiology reg always wanted to know when I was presenting these patients in the morning, I wanted to know the TSH because hyperthyroidism is a really common precipitant. Mm-hmm. Pulmonary embolism, that's something you don't want to miss. Alcohol intoxication, that's very common as well. Infection of any sort, you go into a tachycardia and then you can kind of flip into mm-hmm. AF. 
uh, and acute myocardial infarction is another one. Yeah, that's right. And there's a couple of other things. Cardiac surgery, you really commonly get AF complicating cardiac surgery afterwards. It's thought to be because of an inflammatory pericarditis. And also PE can be something that can cause a... Maybe I said that one wrong. Did you? Mm-hmm. I don't think you did. But anyway. Oh, you did say that. Mm. I apologize, everyone, Davor in particular. All right, so that's that. Now, what conditions are associated with AF? Now, when I say that, I mean, what sort of things do you commonly see in AF patients, aside from risk factors for AF? Things that sort More of a consequence. Yeah, I guess consequence. So heart failure is one of them. People so, with AF have an increased risk of heart failure, but at the same time, people with heart failure have an increased risk of AF. There's a bit of a two-way street there. Mm. So this is the big one. that we. This is the reason AF is such an important problem. If you're a neurologist. Because it has a, <laughs> is associated with an increased risk of stroke by five. Mm. And it actually accounts for 25 to 30% of stroke. Of all strokes out there, that's mm. right. And we'll talk a bit more about how that works later as well. Um, AF People with AF also have a higher rate of dementia. And the idea is that with these chronic, again, we'll talk about this later, but they are at risk for developing thrombus in the left side of their heart, which can shoot off up into their brain and cause lots of little micro-strokes, which over time take their effect on your, your grey matter and you become demented, unfortunately. Onward with the case. Onward with the case. Would you like to read this part out? No. no. Okay, back to me. You have known Ainur and her husband Elchin, also a traditional Azerbaijani name, not sure if it's male or female, <laughs> for a long time. She is overweight and Elchin often complains of her snoring at night. You've previously reprimanded Elchin for his complaints and advised him to be grateful he has found such a beautiful transcaucasian heiress. Some have accused you of having an Azerbaijani fetish. <laughs> you don't listen to that at all. This is why I'm not reading this case. <laughs> uh, I just don't think I could do it justice. So let's talk about the pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation. All right. So, as we said, it's disorganized, rapid, irregularly irregular atrial activation. That's right. You pretty much lose any consistent electrical signal or coordinate electrical signal going through the atria. And as you can imagine, you have a loss of contraction because yeah. of that. The atria isn't contracting very well. That doesn't matter so much for your uh, output, cardiac output, because your, uh, your ventricle does most of the work. Mm. Uh, but it does matter in terms of conducting that rate. That's right. The other thing is, if someone has a pretty bad ventricle or a pretty stiff ventricle, and there are a whole bunch of conditions that can give you that, like Hockham, or if you have long-standing aortic stenosis and you get a lot of hypertrophy of your left ventricle, then it really does rely on that extra contraction from the left atrium to fill up the ventricle. The passive filling is not enough. And thus, in those people, when they get AF, it can be enough to tip them over into heart failure. Mm, mm. So it can, it can make a difference that's in cardiac right. output. So that's called the atrial kick. The atrial kick. Uh, you can also reduce your cardiac output from AF just because you your heart is going so fast it doesn't have enough time to fill. So that transmission, the signal is getting transmitted so fast across the AV node, which is the atrioventricular node, which mm-hmm. connects the top and the bottom parts of the heart. It's going so fast across there that the bottom part of the heart doesn't have enough time to relax and fill with blood, and it's not getting it while it's pumping fast. It's not actually getting anything out there. Mm. So that's one consequence that you can have reduced cardiac output with atrial fibrillation. And the really important one, which is why we care about the heart mm. at all, <laughs> is because it predisposes to thrombus, which can flick off into the brain. That's so right. it can flick off to other organs that are less important, the mm. gut, for example. Like every other organ. If you can think of any other organ, less important than the brain. <laughs> Uh, but the major one is stroke, and that's because the blood is pooling in the atrium, right, because it's not flowing through nicely, right. and it creates a nice thrombogenic environment in there. Remember back to Verkoff or Verkow, if you only read uh, textbooks and never talk to anyone. His triad, one of performing a clot or thrombus, one of them is stasis, and so you get stasis in the left atrial appendage. Mm. Uh, so basically, AF begins... It all begins when, at the start when you have rapid-firing focus somewhere in the atrium. And these focuses just shoot off and they discoordinate everything else because they sort of take over. And they're most commonly found in the muscular sleeves and the pulmonary veins. Um, and that's why ablation often focuses on isolating those pulmonary veins electrically. But don't worry too much about that. Um, but really, it's a combination of many things. So it's the electrical factors in the myocardium, so the properties of how the myocardium, the cardiac muscle, conducts electricity, structural stuff, so what the myocardium is actually made of, like fibrosis, whether it's ischemia, infiltration, it's been hypertrophied. And then there's contributors and modulators, which are things we talked about before, like hyperthyroidism, alcohol intoxication. All these things can change change the environment a little bit to kick off the AF. And and I, th- I think it's always worth going back to the pathophysiology when you've got a patient in front of them. Are they a young person with a structurally normal heart on echo with pretty good lifestyle, so it's mostly electrical? That means it's probably something you can fix easily 
easily with ablation, for example? Or is this a, a very old dilated heart that is not very good structurally and really you, you, this person is always going to be at very, very high risk of AF no matter what you do? And in that kind of patient, you're more aiming for rate control. Mm. Or is this a patient that if you just fix their... Uh, obstructive sleep apnea or got them to lose some weight or stop them from drinking so much alcohol, that would make a huge difference. Yeah. So always come back as well to that electrical map of the heart. So starting at the sinus node, going through the atria, down into the AV node and down into the ventricles. And just think about, you know, when you're trying to think about where the AF is and what's actually happening, you've just got to imagine those atria taking over the role of the normal conducted sinus node and just messing up with that AV node. But everything below that is flowing nicely. Mm. Okay. The other thing I, I wanted to mention with the pathophysiology is the older adage, AF begets AF. Uh, drops so the knowledge on us. Here, so us. As soon as you've had one episode of AF, I'm told, you're electrically predisposed to having another episode. And the more AF you have, the more likely you'll stay in F, and That's the right. harder it will be to get you out of it. That's right. So your atrium starts to change every time you have AF. It becomes more scarred, the electrical properties change, and then you get more and more AF. Um, and atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation can commonly coexist in the same heart. So if we're going to classify AF, if I said to you, Davo, I want you to invent a classification system that accurately comprises how I need to manage AF, what would you come up with? Like, are you asking me to be practical or creative? Um, just imagine you're the AHA 2014 guidelines. Well, probably aiming more for practicality yeah. <laughs> okay. and use in everyday situations. In that kind of situation, I would I would do something similar to what they've done, which is <laughs> classify along the lines of time course. So you've probably heard the term paroxysmal AF. So that's when uh, the AF starts and stops spontaneously, and it's usually initiated in the pulmonary veins. Mm. And then the kind of step up from that is persistent AF. They love their P's, the AHA. Mm. And that's when the duration is greater than seven days and often requires cardioversion to revert at that point. And if, if it's present for more than a year, then that's associated with structural changes. As we said, AF begets AF. And that's called long-standing persistent AF. Mm. So it's been going for more than seven days. In fact, it's been going for a whole year and you're starting to get associations with structural changes. And then there's another step above that, which is permanent AF, and that's when you've kind of thrown the towel in and you said, I'm done, mm. I'm only going to aim for rate control, I'm happy with AF, I'm not going to try and change that rhythm. What's interesting is that Darvor is pushing a very paternalistic view here, but the AHA, ACC guidelines push that this must be an agreement between the patient and the clinician to pursue a rate control strategy, so... You always going to ask, are you happy for us to send you over to a rate control strategy as though they understand what you're talking about? Involve the consumer. That's what it's all about. Now, there's another little classification there. It's a non-valvular AF. You'll sometimes hear people say non-valvular AF if you read the Apixaban trials, Aristotle and all of those. They say non-valvular AF. So that just means that AF that isn't associated with mitral stenosis, so a mitral valve that's blocked, or a mechanical or bioprosthetic heart valve, or a mitral valve repair. And the reason that is is... Uh, the treatment of those two is a little bit different because the mitral disease or the valve disease makes your left atria massive. And so it, you have to change your therapeutic strategy a little bit. So to just to go, go through those once more, so paroxysmal when it starts and stops immediately. Uh, Spontaneously is what he means. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there's persistent when it's more than seven days or long-standing persistent when it's been more than a year. And permanent is when you've decided to abandon a rhythm control strategy. Okay, and then in terms of atrial flutter, this is this can get really complex. So this is the cousin of AF. Exactly, AF cousin. They're basically put together because they're really managed almost the same. Um, a this one is a macro reentrant atrial tachycardia. So again, a large reentry circuit, which you might need to flick back to your path, your physiology textbooks. Um, often associated with scar in the atria from surgery or getting old or anything like that. Um, and basically on the ECG, you get these flutter waves, which look like a sort of sawtooth pattern. And they it's like P waves going at 300 beats per minute, essentially, usually with two, two to one AV block. So that AV node can't conduct that fast. That's what it's made for, to slow those things down. Um, and that gives you a regular tachycardia, usually at 140 to 150. So every two atrial beats, every two of those P waves, you're getting one ventricular beat. That always gets me. So many times I've picked up an ECG and be like, oh, it's flutter. I can see the sawtooth. And then it's going in some rate that isn't consistent with that pathophysiology it's going 80 or whatever so it really has to be you know 300 150 100 some something that can be divided 300 divided by some number. yeah exactly because you can get 
four to one block or six yeah. to one block. Um, yeah. So in which case, you know, you just keep dividing 300 by that number. It's unusual to get an odd number block. So you don't usually get five to one or three to one. So if you see that, then keep an eye out for that. Um, and it is important to note, Davo, even though you've said that, if someone is on antiarrhythmic therapy, sometimes you can get strange numbers. That's true, yeah. Um, so typic- there's this thing called typical flutter and atypical Before flutter. Before we dive into this, we're yeah. going to put the flag down. This is advanced <laughs> knowledge. You do not need to know this for medical yeah, students. But if is- we've bored you with our talk thus far and you've actually listened for the past 15 minutes, we're going to reward yeah. you with something maybe you don't know. Yeah, if you're a superstar. So there's typical flutter, which is the circuit around the tricuspid annulus, and this passes through the cavo tricuspid annulus. So that's a cavo tricuspid tricuspid isthmus sorry we're learning as we go exactly <laughs> so the tricuspid annulus is the is the ring around the tricuspid valve and usually it goes counterclockwise around this and this gives you negative flutter waves in two three and avf which are the inferior leaves. inferior leaves and a positive flutter wave in v1 if it's clockwise uh, the opposite to counterclockwise for those of you who haven't been through grade school the opposite vectors apply. So positive waves in 2, 3 AVF and negative waves in V1. And then there's atypical flutter separate to this. Now, this is left atrial atrial flutter. And um, this isn't dependent on the cavotricuspid isthmus, usually only seen after surgery or ablation of that left atrium. And that has very different P wave vectors and can be hard to diagnose. That's often done on EP study, which is an electrophysiologic study, which is an invasive thing. So don't worry too much about that. But why does any of this matter? Well, to you, it probably doesn't. But um, basically, these can have... If you're going to go and do an ablation for atrial flutter, which is very effective, then this this matters. Okay? All right. So back to the case and back to useful stuff for people that aren't going to become electrophysiologists. Case part three. All right. So after a friendly discussion of Turkic issues and the latest rulings of the new Azerbaijan party, you take a thorough history from Ainur. She tells you she's had no dizziness, no chest pain, no previous heart disease, takes only the ACE inhibitor you expertly prescribed her last year for hypertension, and has never had a stroke. When diving elegantly into the social history like a black swan, you learn that Ainur has recently taken to drinking straight vodka after a lifetime of devout Islamic faith, as is the dominant religion in Azerbaijan. The palpitations add more weight to the hangovers, she tells you. A few things I get out of this little stem you've given us here. So... In terms of the CHADS VAS score, which is what we'll talk about later, which is what you need to do to grade someone's risk for stroke if they have AF, she's got hypertension, she's a female, and she's more than 67. So she's got some risk factors, but she doesn't have heart failure, she doesn't have a stroke, she doesn't have peripheral vascular peripheral vascular disease and she doesn't have diabetes Mm. so she's kind of a moderate risk and then she's got a clear precipitant here as well the the new alcohol she's drinking and i guess the other side of this is if someone in hospital you'd always want to check whether they were in heart failure because of all of this like acute heart failure because they're af whether they're you know not rate controlled that rate's currently sitting at 140 and whether there's some other obvious thing like a pneumonia or anything else going on but it seems like Ainur is still pretty with it she's still talking to you about turkic issues and you're pretty safe to assume she's okay um, so, clinical evaluation. Uh, the presentation depends on the ventric- ventricular rate, whether they've got underlying heart disease and whether they have any comorbidities. Some people are asymptomatic, double. Many, yeah. I remember I saw a wife and husband in clinic once, which both had AF, and one of them, like, they both had paroxysmal AF, it was very similar, mm. but one of them was intensely symptomatic, and uh, the other was completely asymptomatic, and they both just couldn't believe... Yeah, Do you remember story. which one was symptomatic? I'm going to dive into any kind of sexist. Okay, well, just rubbish here. Right, well. <laughs> de-identify this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, some people are asymptomatic, silent AF, and they never tell. Darvel could be having AF right now, and we wouldn't know. Maybe I do. Um, so, always ask about the symptoms and the precipitating causes. So, go back to those precipitating causes, Darvel. So there's kind of more immediate precipitating causes, things like infections, alcohol, stimulant, you know, cocaine. Probably should ask, should have got that bit of history from our Azerbaijani lady. She's exploring the world. Who knows what she's picked up? And then you kind of more underlying conditions like hypertension was the biggest risk factor. I remember diabetes was a really big one as well. COPD, OSA related to the hypertension and hyperthyroidism is, is really going to predispose you to AF as well. All of these things. And then the next thing to talk about is symptoms. So what sort of symptoms might a person get? So the of? biggest one that people report to me are palpitations. You know, ask them, can you feel your heart beating? And they'll be like, bam, 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 it's thumping in my, thumping in my so chest. It's always good to get people to tap out the rhythm and help you. Sometimes people That's know and point, you can actually. get them to... Then you can start... 
beatboxing. Yeah, you go over the top line. I'm going in, going in. Hold my, hold my mic. Don't hold my mic, so I need to speak into that. Uh, yeah, so palpitations is one. Summary of that situation. That conversation, that med conversation. Uh, easy fatigability, dizziness, increased urination, and dyspnea is the big one. You talked about losing that atrial kick and could mean they can go into a little bit of pulmonary edema, a bit of heart failure. Mm-hmm. And then in really severe cases, if they've got quite a fragile coronary artery system, so a bit of AF can actually put them into angina, put them into ischemic state. And I've never seen this, but apparently it can cause presyncope and syncope. Oh, I've definitely seen that. I think you'd be a brave man to ascribe the AF. Yeah. I'd be looking for other causes. No more investigation needed. <laughs> she's in AF. She's had it for years and she's sick. That's fine. Um, so some may present... Again, syncope would be more common if you have a condition that relies upon that atrial kick. So if you've got, you know, uh, mitral stenosis or um, Hockham or hypertensive heart disease, then it's possible that... Losing that atrial kick could make your left cardiac output fall so much that you lose supply to the brain, the power supply to the brain. The other possibility is slow AF or sick sinus syndrome is Mm. often associated with AF. That's correct. Um, And some may present with symptoms of an embolic event first time. So you might get someone rocking up with a stroke, you'll do the ECG, and there's the AF. There's a lot of AF diagnosed on the stroke ward, and that is an unfortunate situation. We're actually looking into some public health type measures, aren't we? I mean, I'm not. Uh, You might be. (laughs) I commend you for that. Um, signs of when you're looking at someone. So this is the buzzword here, irregularly irregular. Irregularly irregular pulse. Mm. And uh, really on a stroke ward round, you should be feeling everyone's pulse Mm. who you don't know the cause of the stroke and just seeing if they happen to be in AF at that moment. We've picked up a few AFs that way and then just whipped out the ECG with that pulse and diagnosed the AF and put them on an anticoagulant. Now, something that's worth saying here is that, uh, so if you're feeling that pulse and it feels kind of fast but not really that fast and they're in AF, you're like, ah, it's well-controlled AF. It's either worth, I mean, getting an ECG unless, you you know, some people, if they already had AF, you wouldn't bother getting an ECG. But listen to their chest because if you get a beat that doesn't fill up very much but the ventricle contracts, and they could actually, it won't often conduct to a pulse, but when you listen to their heart, you'll hear the valves open and close. And so it could actually be going faster than you think. Ah, interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. really good point. Yeah, no worries. A knowledge bomb there. Yeah. Um, causative conditions-wise, you can listen to murmurs, such as mitral stenosis murmur, mitral regurge murmur, Hockham murmur. We won't go too much into that now. Do see our Hockham podcast if you're looking for more information there. You need to say that more and more. It's quite yeah, satisfying. I love that. Um, signs of heart failure. Do see our Signs of Heart Failure podcast. <laughs> and obesity. Um, and then consequences-wise, you can look for signs of heart failure. Look for a stroke, I guess, if they haven't realized they've had a stroke. Um, yeah, does happen. All right, read us case part five of the case. Okay, you perform an ECG on Inura and find what you think might be atrial fibrillation with a normal ventricular rate. You call a cardiologist mate of yours from high school who you still play royal tennis with on the odd occasion. He advises you that it is indeed the dreaded AF and that he can't make a royal tennis this Sunday because he's going to a free Scientology meeting. He thinks he might be interested in a new way of life after his recent divorce from what he describes as his blood-sucking wife. The conversation quickly turns misogynistic and you hang up on him. I'm very proud of you for doing that, Rahul. Saucy. Let's find out We're what happens. We're a new type there. of cardiologist. Yeah. <laughs> so, the ECG. What, what's the ECG show? Darling? So, this is really important. So, as I said, you can't you can't go, you know, the pulse is irregularly irregular. This is AF. Walk away. Look Boom. Put them on anticoagulant. Make sure you drop that mic before you walk away. <laughs> <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to get your ECG and you've got to find the, that irregularly irregular rhythm with no discernible P wave. So you've got mm. the fibrillating atrium, and so you won't see any clear P waves. No clear P wave activity. So what are some extra things you might be looking for? Bang for our buck from this ECG. Let's not stop there. So evidence of... I'm going to give everyone at home time to think because apparently Beck was saying you guys like that. And, and suddenly decided to institute yeah. that now. <laughs> 20 <laughs> minutes into the podcast. Good one. Left ventricular hypertrophy, that's right, people at home, listeners at home. So you might have someone with hypertension or aortic stenosis and they got LVH. Uh, you might see some Q waves. What might that signal? Though? Previous coronary artery disease. Right. They might have had an MI in the past. You might see some ST depression, T wave inversion, ST elevation. So that's I'm going to give you a time to think about what that might mean. That's an acute coronary syndrome. Acute coronary syndrome. Do remember that you can get some ST elevation with increased rate and ST depression. You can get some ST changes with increased rate. So it's not always like, bam, lock it in, they're having a heart attack. Um, and then conduction disease. And that's really important because you're going to decide what drugs to give them. So if they've got evidence of pre-excitation, like Wolf, Parkinson, White. This is really, really key. 
Yes. Let's, let's emphasize this one. Davo, your sarcasm can be a bit confusing to the listeners. <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. Right. That's really important. <laughs> it, is, it is very important, but it's hard to, I guess. Yeah, well, you should always look for it. So pre-excitation, what are the signs of Wolf Parkinson's So you've got suggest? a delta wave. Mm. So that upsloping part of the QRS complex. Have a look at some ECG patterns. We'll talk about later why that's really important to pick up. But So delta wave, wide QRS goes in and with that in a short PR interval. That's all pre-excitation. You're not going to have a PR interval. Yes, Davo, you're wrong, as we, we discussed earlier. Um, now, we just move on to the branch plots. So just to make that clear, you won't have P waves because you'll have that fibrillating baseline. If they're in fibrillation. Yeah. If we're looking at a baseline ECG, you will have P waves, and Davo is wrong, and that's what everyone else <laughs> needs to know. <laughs> Bundle branch blocks and complete AV block or any sort of AV block can also be um, indicative of interconduction disease, which, again, will affect what drugs you put them on so, mm. a bit, a bit so this is an interesting one you've had a good clinical moment here haven't you yeah so you can actually get af with a complete third degree block av block and what might that look like on an ecg data? so that will be regular rr waves there'll be uh ventricular type r waves there'll be widened qrs's but they'll be regular which is unusual in af obviously so that mm. just means it's not conducting at all but you still have that fibrillating baseline yeah i imagine that would be tricky sometimes to differentiate between flutter and AF with complete heart block. Yeah, I guess if you had like a fairly new AF, then mm. it would be coarse AF waves. Course, yeah. yeah, that's right. But yeah, so that's that's one that consultants would like to see. So if you're in the in the mood for making love to your consultant, then I highly recommend looking at what that looks like. Now, what are we talking about? <laughs> atrial flutter. Atrial flutter. What does atrial flutter look like on an ECG? Diet? So that's the sawtooth pattern. Classic sawtooth pattern is that's the buzzword. Right. And those P waves are going about 300 beats a minute or 200 millisecond cycle for a or electrophysiologist some, out there. some number divided by that. So 2 to 1 is the most common, 150. Well, the P waves are going at 300 beats a minute. But yeah. the, the, number, the divided so the numbers here are yeah. the QRS complexes. Yeah. So they're going usually at 2 to 1, but in old people, they've got a bad AV node, maybe 4 to 1. People who are on a beta blocker, maybe 4 to 1. People on a class 1 drug like flecainide or uh, propafenone, they can be 1 to 1. And so that's dangerous um sawtooth atrial activity is normally negative in two three avf in typical flutter anyway i won't go into that too much more the echo how do i make my 300 buck from this patient is what i'm wondering so you just got to know if they've got a structurally normal heart because that's going to decide what drugs you put them on as well that's right okay so basically looking at any valves and you want to measure all their left ventricle their atrium and if they have a really large left atrium that means it's going to be hard to keep them in uh, sinus rhythm because it predisposes you to getting AF. And also means they'll probably have, maybe have valvular AF. So if they've got mitral stenosis on that echo, you can't put them on one of the new anticoagulation mm. agents they need. Because that's from. valvular AF. All right, case part six. Realising that in order for this case to work, to make sense at all, your conversation with the cardiologist must continue. So you call them back immediately. After a few more minutes of misogyny, he gives you advice on what to do next. He says to put her on a beta blocker, whack her on some rivaroxaban and never to hang up on him again or else blood will be shed in the streets. Isn't it funny how everyone always whacks people on rivaroxaban? No, no, I don't think anyone does that. Usually mm-hmm. they carefully consider <laughs> the prescription and prescribe it and then the patient takes the tablet. No, well then I apologise for my mistakes. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Mm. Alright, so moving into management. So the first thing we should say is you should treat the underlying disease that you think might be contributing. So if there's obstructive sleep apnea, you said there was a study uh, that actually showed that was just as good as ablation, didn't you? Never said that. <laughs> I don't know where this has come. Yes. No, there was a study where there was a randomized control trial. They took some people, a whole bunch of people with OSA and paroxysmal AF, gave half of them the, uh, the CPAP machine to the other half, we're not going to treat your disease and left them alone. And the people who got the CPAP actually had a much lower occurrence of AF because it was paroxysmal. So it's pretty much as good as catheter ablation and costs not nearly as much. Mm. So other things like hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, obesity, all of these things, as you know, have treatments. And if we treat that, we might be able to fix AF. But moving along from that to treat the actual AF. So what do I do if it's a new onset AF? Well, is it unstable? Yeah, it's unstable. Great. Okay. Well, then if they're hypotensive or they got pulmonary edema or angina, then you need to DC cardiovert them 
immediately. So let's make it clear what we mean by unstable. So hemodynamically unstable. Yeah. So their blood pressure is crashing. Yep. And they might imminently going to be They're not die. fusing their organs. So yeah. Oral digoxin is not the appropriate <laughs> medication. <laughs> oral digoxin and review in 24 hours with an ECG. It's not what it's you not. do. You need a cardio, but they need some electricity. <laughs> and you can say stat. Yeah. And you can just grab power lines out of the wall <laughs> if you need to. That's how urgent this is. Um, <laughs> just throw a computer at them. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it's like. And so just to give those who aren't in the know a little lowdown on cardioversion, basically it's a good way of getting someone back to sinus rhythm. Uh, it's a classic like hospital thing where you put some pads on someone and put a big shock through them. Ideally, it can be painful so and just feel generally uncomfortable. So we like to sedate people first. But if someone is like crashing, then you don't wait for the anesthetist to get there and give them all these drugs. You just shock them and um, you put the pads on either front and back of the chest or on the sort of lateral two sides of the chest and 200 joules for atrial fibrillation, dial it up, synchronous shock, which means you time it with the R wave so that you don't get R on T phenomenon, um, and the machine will automatically do that for you. So it, it so, can all- so just to summarize, so cardioversion, putting them into sinus from AF can be done in an unstable situation, but can also be done in a planned situation where they're stable, but you just want to get them into sinus rhythm. And yeah. that's a good thing to do in someone who's got someone a structurally pre- normal heart. Exactly, and presents with their first episode of AF. Look, they'll probably go back at some point in time. Some people never do that. Yeah, no, probably all of them do. <laughs> <laughs> Some people never do, I swear. Okay. Um, so what's the danger of doing that? Why do we have to do all this planning? Well, one of the main things that needs to really be thought about is that when you cardiovert someone, because they've been having this fibrillating atrium that has been ineffectively conducting and they may have built up a clot in that left atrial appendage, that little ball sack that hangs <laughs> off the atrium, um, they once you restore them to sinus rhythm and the atrium starts pumping normally again, then it might flick that clot off to some important organ like the brain or mm. like the heart and they can get a stroke or if it's the gut, you know, they can get ischemic gut, whatever it is. So, so plan for this. So if you have time and if you can plan for this as someone who's stable and has come in, you what you ideally want to do is you want to anticoagulate them for three weeks before you shock them. Now, there are some people you don't need to anticoagulate. If people rock up in the first 48 hours or within two days and they say, oh, it only started an hour ago, I get symptoms, I knew it started an hour ago, then they're not very high risk. In that time, it's pretty hard to build up a thrombus and you can usually just shock them. But if it's if it's more than 48 hours or unknown, you know, they're asymptomatic and you have no idea how long they've been there for, then you need to anticoagulate them for three weeks before. And anyone you shock, you need to also anticoagulate them for four weeks after the cardioversion because it stuns their atrial muscle. And so they're... It effectively doesn't pump, pump very well. Um, Say I've got private health insurance and I don't want to you know, wait three weeks for this uncomfortable AF, but I'm not sure when it started. Mm. What, is there some other technique? Yeah. So see there's if there's a, a clock. I'm there. glad you asked that question, Davo. Um, so you can do a transesophageal echocardiogram. So you put the probe, this big egg on a stick. Um, that was the victory, victory sound. <laughs> you put an egg on the stick down the throat and you can look directly at the left atrium. It's got really good sensitivity and specificity for seeing where there's a thrombus in that left atrial appendage, and if there's nothing there, boom, shock away. They still need anticoagulation for four weeks after for the same reason, that that atrial muscle becomes stunned. And they need a bit of anticoagulation beforehand, so we're going to give them a couple of shots of clexane. Shot of clexane, yeah. Um, All right, so that's the acute management in a a first nuanced AF, an unstable AF. mm -hmm. So what about more generally? How do I get control of the rate? Well, first let's talk about the two main um, kind of strategies that we've alluded to previously in the podcast, the rate control strategy and the rhythm control strategy. Uh, so yeah, rate control is when you essentially keep them in AF, you accept they're going to be in AF and you give them medications just to make sure that AF doesn't go too fast. So you're controlling the heart rate. Rhythm control is trying to get them back into sinus rhythm and ideally keep them in sinus rhythm. And the, and, uh, the big kind of take home point from rate versus rhythm control is there's no difference in mortality uh, no matter which strategy you pursue. That's right. Now, there might be symptomatic difference in that, you know, someone who's in sinus rhythm, and if they get really symptomatic with atrial fibrillation, is not going to be having those symptoms. And also, there is a difference in stroke um, with, you know, rhythm and rate control. Uh, it's just the problem is that our rhythm control drugs just aren't that good at keeping people in sinus rhythm. So when you analyze those studies on a per-protocol basis, i.e. you look at the people who actually manage to stay in sinus rhythm, they do do better. But uh, unfortunately, the drugs themselves and you know, all the techniques we have aren't that good. So overall, they don't do better. That'll be something to investigate in the future. But for the moment, the company line is both are equivalent from a mortality point yeah. of view. You've got to have a discussion with your patient about how their symptoms are going versus the side effects of the antiarrhythmics. Because that's c- the other trade-off, right? The antiarrhythmics are 
have terrible side effects. Mm. And the other sort of thing to think about is that every patient is different. And so some patients, you've got absolutely no hope of keeping them in sinus rhythms. There's no point. Um, and some of them have conditions that are critical to be maintained in sinus rhythm. We'll talk about that later. So let's dive into rate control now. So acutely, I'm sitting on the ward. I get a call. Uh, so-and-so's rate is 150, what do you do? Yep, so you want to basically, as long as they're not unstable again, so first thing you want to do is make sure their blood pressure's okay, they're not having active ischemia, blah, 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 because then you need to shock them. Um, you basically want to bring their heart rate down to 100 beats per minute. Um, and so that can be done with beta blockers like metoprolol or, you know, uh, esmolol, anything in, in olol, uh, calcium channel blockers, the non-dihydropyridine ones, so verapamil and diltiazem, these act centrally on the heart as opposed to the other ones which act on the blood vessels peripherally, or amiodarone. Um, and the important thing is don't use these in pre-excitation. So in someone who you know has Wolf Parkinson White, which is going to be very rare for most people out there to see, but if you know someone has that, don't use these as they can increase that conduction down the accessory pathway and make your ventricles go really fast and even give you ventricular fibrillation and kill someone. So that's why I look for that delta wave. That's why I was emphasizing that previously is really important. Mm. Um, and if you've got someone whose blood pressure is a little bit low or they've got some heart failure, you don't want to give them a beta blocker because it's a negative ionotrope. If, you, if that's the way you feel, you can sort of start slowly with a beta blocker or you can give them a bit of digoxin on top of all of that. Unfortunately, it's not that effective, but that is by far the commonest situation I've been in. Someone who always has a blood pressure of 100 because they're in heart failure and then they flick into AF, 150, 160, can't give them a beta blocker, can't give them a calcium channel blocker, all I can give them is digoxin. Yep. Uh, now, so once you've got them under control, under 100 beats per minute, and they're sitting pretty on the ward, you move to chronic rate control. So what are you going to do long-term to help keep this person's rate under control? So a lot of the same drugs are pretty useful, actually. Yeah, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, amiodarone, if you've got other things that are unsuccessful. Amiodarone has a lot of side effects, so that's the main problem there. Um, and basically, you want their resting rate when they're just sitting in a chair recording a podcast to be less than 80 beats per minute. And with light exertion, like walking around or, you know, just, just a light walk around the house, you want it to go up to 100 to 110, no more. Anymore. You kind of titrate it to symptoms, though. If they're 110 and they're asymptomatic, that's probably okay. Mm. Um, and if, if you really can't chronically rate control someone, you can think about an AF ablation. You can think about whether or not antirhythmic drugs or rate or rhythm control is appropriate there. Um, or if all of that fails, you can actually just ablate the AV node, so you burn the AV node away, put a pacemaker in and call it a day, go home. Seems kind of extreme to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that was rate control, acute and chronic situation. So we're moving into rhythm control now. Tell me more about that. Okay, so rhythm control is a lot more complex. Usually it will be done, almost always will be done by cardiologists. Um, so it's basically for people who have really symptomatic paroxysmal AF. People have a first episode of symptomatic persistent AF, um, and you don't use it in permanent, obviously, by definition, because what was the definition of permanent devil? You've abandoned the rhythm control yeah, strategy. you're sticking for rate control. So you can also use it in people with AF who have difficult rate control, who you want to try something else, or AF with aggravating heart failure, where the AF causes heart failure. This happens in Hockham or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and also, like we said before, AF with pre-excitation, like Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So I think it's useful to go back to that pathophysiology we were talking about before. Someone who's got a structurally normal heart, not too many of those lifestyle risk factors that you can modify, but for some reason has AF, I think a rhythm control strategy would be pretty reasonable in someone like that. Or in someone who has a structurally abnormal heart where AF would be critically bad for them, like Hockham or half So they need that atrial kick to get all up in there. Mm. Now, you can rhythm control with antiarrhythmic drugs, and that's sort of been the thing that we've done for years. So there's class 1 agents like fleconide, disapyramide, propafenone, these have a lot of side effects, and basically the major thing to know is that you can't use them for people with structural heart disease or coronary artery disease. So this is why we did that echo all mm. those weeks ago. So you can actually use some of them as a pill-in-the-pocket technique, because mm. I know flaconide is popular for that use. pill-in-the-pocket. Someone has paroxysmal AF, just get it every once in a while, mm. pop it when they get symptomatic. They might be on a beta blocker normally, and then they take the flaconide every once in a while. And usually you will put someone on who has atrial flutter. This is something to think about. If someone has atrial flutter and you want to use a class 1 agent, you usually give them a beta blocker as well, because otherwise it can turn into one-to-one -one conduction and their ventricle can suck up. Oh, right. It's yeah. a bit of a pearl. That's a pearl right there. Um, now, class 3 agents are really used for those people who have coronary artery disease or structural heart disease. They have much lower risk um, in terms of being a negative inotrope and their proarrhythmic effects. But they can still cause the dreaded tossade de pointe. <laughs> you know what that is, Davos? 
The twisting points. The twisting of the points. It's a, it's a form of ventricular tachycardia, which is very dangerous and unstable. It's a polymorphic VT. Um, amiodarone is more effective than sotalol and dofetilide, but one about 20% of patients, or one one in every five, have toxicities. And dirty, dirty drug amiodarone. Really yeah. Dirty. And they're pretty bad toxicities as well. Um, sotalol is what I see a lot of. I think that's a popular choice in this kind of patient group. Sotalol is um, popular. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so catheter ablation-wise, this is a new thing um, that you don't really even see much done in Australia. It's not on the PBS. It, uh, it's, not yeah, it's not in PBS. Not on the PBS. You have to get your patient, convince your patient to get private health insurance, and then you can ablate them. Um, it basically avoids the toxicities of all those antiarrhythmic drugs, but requires really experienced centers. It takes a long time. The first one usually won't completely get rid of it, and within one year, about 60% of them will have AF come back. Um, and then every time you do another one, you get rid of a bit more of that AF substrate and they've got a lower chance of coming back. So this is the pulmonary vein isolation. Remember we said someone who's got a normal heart, they've just got an electrical abnormality. Usually the AF will come from the region of the pulmonary vein. So that's what we burn. Yeah. I never burn it, but that's what people oh, burn. Never has nor will burn it. <laughs> um, but it is worth noting that in people with permanent or really persistent AF, um, it's not as effective because, like I was saying before, initially it starts off coming from the pulmonary veins, but over time, as you like remodel, it comes from everywhere in your atrium. Um, and the effect on mortality really is not known for catheter ablation. A lot, a lot more study needed. There was actually a Turkish study recently. Turkish. They used, they used sham studies oh, on, on catheter ablation. And so that's the big argument from people who hate catheter ablation is that, you know, you're not actually putting a catheter in and not doing ablation in, you know, your randomized, you know, the non, non, um, non-intervention non arm of the trial. And so they say but this, this is, Turkish study did and they found that it wasn't effective. Wasn't effective, really. Mm-hmm. I don't have to look at the Turkish study. The thing is, you know, I mean... With coronary stents, there was no sham studies where they gatherized someone and passed a wire down the vessel and didn't put anything in there. So it's a bit hypocritical to say you need to have sham studies. But anyway, um, you just imagine your mum was the person they're doing a sham study on. They're putting a wire in her heart and doing nothing. For the good of science. Um, so it reduces symptoms, same risk of stroke, probably because we're not good at rhythm control overall. And again, the disadvantages are that one, they still need anticoagulation and two, many side effects of the antiarrhythmic drugs if they are on one. Um, so, so just that last point, I want to emphasize that even if you've got them in a good rhythm control study and every time they come and see you, they're always in sinus, they still need to be in anticoagulation. Yeah, there's some work being done on implantable loop recorders and pacemakers, which can obviously give you a 24-hour reading of someone's heart. And if someone has no AF, well, can you take them off? And that work is still being uh, sort of developed. For the um, moment, everyone needs to be on anticoagulation. Mm. All right, let's talk about the interesting part. So stroke prophylaxis. So I just want to emphasize here that there is no difference, no significant difference in stroke between people that have a rhythm control or a rate control study or between someone who's in paroxysmal or um, permanent AF. That's right. Okay. So um, the choice of anticoagulant. So basically there's this thing called the CHADS vascular, which I'm sure many of you have heard of or haven't heard of. Um, and basically if the score is more than two, uh, you will. they need anticoagulation. Uh, if the score is one, you can consider it. And if the score is zero, then they don't need anticoagulation. And the things that go into that score, Darvel? So the CHAS-VAS score, this is something you should look in in everyone who comes in with AF, and it's risk factors that predispose them to stroke. So the C is congestive heart failure. The H is hypertension. Uh, the first A is age over 75, and that nets you two points. Uh, diabetes, a previous stroke or TA, that also nets you two points. Uh, the V is for vascular disease. The second A is for age 65 to 75, and that um, nets you one point. And then the S is sex, um, so females are at higher risk. So that nets you one point as well. Start off with a calculator. It's probably the easiest way, and then over time you'll remember all of the factors. Exactly, yeah. But basically, if you're zero, you don't need anticoagulation. If you're one, it's uh, kind of a toss-up between aspirin and anticoagulation. Two and above, you definitely need anticoagulation if there aren't significant contraindications. Aspirin is not very popular, but you will see some people on it. Um, And basically, your stroke risk, in case anyone asks you, so with a CHADS-VAS score of one, it's about 1% per year. Uh, If it's all the way up to nine, you're looking at about 18% per year. So it does go up quite a bit. Um, in terms of anticoagulant choice, Davo, oh, actually, before we get there, 
well, it should be individualized for every patient is the, the summary of that. Um, you basically look at their renal function, their liver function, their risk of bleeding, whether they've had any GI problems because some of them cause you to bleed in the gut, some of them cause you to bleed in the brain, um, and whether they've got valvular disease. Now, if someone has valvular AF, what does that mean? So we mentioned that before, but that's when you've got mitral stenosis and that's the cause of the AF. Yeah. And that's going to need some pretty hardcore anticoagulation. There's also any mechanical valve basically falls into that um, that category. So, and with those people, they need to be on warfarin. They can't be on any of this new fancy stuff. Um, the main risk from all of this anticoagulation is bleeding, and so the newer ones can't be reversed uh, yet, though there are some new agents coming out. Warfarin can be reversed. So in someone who has a really high risk of bleeding, you probably want to go for warfarin. Um, let's go through a couple of the anticoagulants, Davo. So warfarin, what's your INR range? So usually two to three. And how does it actually work, and what does INR mean? So INR is your international normalized ratio, and that is a ratio of your prothrombin time, mm-hmm. which is a measure of your intrin- extrinsic pathway. Sorry. Very good, very good. Um, and it has some, warfarin has a lot of interactions with food, green leafy vegetables, amiodarone, a lot of other drugs. Um, and it, the major hemorrhagic risk for warfarin is 1% per year, so that's like bleeding into your gut, your brain, requiring transfusion. Um, and But the thing about warfarin is it's inexpensive. It's been used for years. It's widely available, and you can use it in people with end-stage renal failure and dialysis. But you just got to do those pesky INRs, which is really annoying. Yeah, so people have to get tested at the max, like, monthly. Um, Dibigatran? So we've moved into the NOAX now, the stupidly named NOAX. The DOAX, as they're now called. Well, previously known as the novel mm. oral anticoagulants with the... The little foresight to know that one day that would no longer be novel. Yeah. So now we've gone to direct oral anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. And so dibigatran is one of them. It's a direct thrombin inhibitor that's excreted by the liver or uh, metabolized by the liver. And it can be used in people with GFR 15 to 30, but no lower. Um, and it has an onset of action in hours. It's newly available reversal agent Pradbind or Idacizumab is coming across. Barely available and it's expensive. Um, Rivaroxaban is another one. Zorelto is the other name for that. You'll see commonly. Uh, it's a 10A inhibitor, oral 10A inhibitor, cleared by the kidney. Uh, there's no reversal agent again for bleeding, and it can be used in GFRs 15s or above. The big thing about Rivaroxaban, the selling point, is that it's a once a day tablet, whereas all the others are twice a day tablets. Mm. But it's a bit dodgy because the pharmacokinetics aren't actually very different. Mm. So the thought is that it's just not as good as the other ones. And I think that. Uh, anecdotally people are saying a lot of strokes come in on rivaroxaban so certainly where i work we're moving away from rivaroxaban mm. i think soon that won't be as popular as the others apixaban is another one eloquis is the drug name the the brand name for that and it's a 10a inhibitor just like rivaroxaban easy way to remember that is if it's got roxaban it's got xa in it which is 10a in roman like numerals that. Yeah. I like that. um it's cleared by the kidney and the liver and there's two doses available and it can be used in gfrs 15 plus and that'll have a reversal agent soon uh, there's this other thing called left atrial appendage ablation. Basically, you just either ligate the left atrial appendage surgically or you use a percutaneous device. It's pretty specialist stuff. Don't worry too much about it, but basically used for those people who can't have any oral anticoagulants. Uh, and in terms of management of atrial flutter, so that was all atrial fibrillation. Atrial flutter, pretty much like we said before, is managed the same. Um, the tachycardia management, some things to consider is that um, it's a bit harder to rate control atrial flutter with those AV no blockers like beta, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. It's more difficult than AF. Mm. And uh, ablation is very effective for atrial flutter. So you just go, especially if it's that typical atrial flutter, and this is where it comes back to why that's important, you can go in there and you can just burn a line across that cavo tricuspid isthmus. Makes and, sense, right? Because it's a macro circuit. You macro just circuit. That cut one it off, circuit. bang, done, bang, done. Um, 90% have abolished arrhythmia. Do, do they have a stroke risk? Uh, yeah, so even the atrial flutter people, you have to continue on their um, their anticoagulation. But I think they're a bit more lenient in terms of just monitoring them. So the thing is, atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation often occur concomitantly, and so these people might have some atrial fibrillation circuits left over. And then gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for sticking with us so far. We really appreciate it. This is probably the longest podcast we've ever done. I think this is a record setup. My bum hurts. <laughs> but we're going to push through just for some specific patient groups. Um, so feel free to take a break. It's not mandatory that you listen to yeah, it. Yeah, this one is time. sort of the advanced stuff here. But so in Hockham patients, so these patients, these are specific treatment uh, idiosyncrasies for these people. So, so just a patients. reminder, Hockham is hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. See our podcast if you'd like some more information on that. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so Hockham patients, uh, anticoagulation for all of them, if you've got Hockham and AF, and that's because they usually have very big left atrium, so they've got big left atrial appendage. Um, and there's more incentive to rhythm control these people because they get a lot of contribution from the atrial kick. Okay. Acute coronary syndrome patients. Mm-hmm. So if you've got someone who's having a, an acute coronary syndrome, a STEMI, a non-STEMI, they come in, um, and you probably should urgent DCR them if they've got new AF and they've got ongoing ischemia or you can't get that rate under control or they're starting to fill up their lungs with fluid. Um, so basically if they're unstable. So, yeah. Um, otherwise, you can give them an intravenous beta blocker. You can try some amiodarone or digoxin if you're afraid that if you give them intravenous beta blocker, they're going to go into you know heart failure. Um, but, yeah, that's so the, the main thing is that if they're going really fast, they're going to be using more oxygen. And since they've got a lack of oxygen, lack of blood to their heart, you don't want to make their uh, infarct worse. Hypothyroidism. So this is our third clinical situation. Hypothyroidism and AF. Uh, basically, the recommendation is to try and use beta blockers, but if you can't, you can use a non dihydropine That sounds experience. pretty similar to the normal. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I guess they prefer beta blockers to any other right, management. Okay. So gotcha. um, I think it has effects outside of the heart as well. It does, um, yeah. It prevents yeah. peripheral conversion. Well, some of them do anyway. Propanolol being the mm. one, yeah. Um, pulmonary disease. Uh, again, so people with pulmonary disease may have problems if they have really severe bronchospastic disease like asthma or reactive COPD. They may have problems with the beta blockers, so you might start with a non dihydropyridine. I think that the pendulum is swinging on there. For for asthma, definitely. For, for COPD, I think there's been some studies that have come out, and that's certainly the new trend that I'm seeing, that we don't really care about beta blockers yeah, much anymore. Yeah, asthma. I mean, I, none of the consultants I talk to really think it's worth very much, um, yeah. and certainly I've never seen anyone. It's a bit overblown, that one. Um, so Wolf-Parkinson-White and pre-excitation syndrome. We talked about this before. This is where you can kill someone, so be aware of this. So if someone has a Wolf-Parkinson-White, you know, and, or has a bridge from the atrium to the ventricles outside of the AV node, um, these patients can train. That actually has a very fast conduction velocity, unlike the a- AV node. And so these people can go to very fast conduction of all those atrial signals, and that can lead them to ventricular fibrillation or at least very fast, rapid response from the ventricles, which they shut down. So they've got this accessory pathway between the atria and the ventricles. Yep. And uh, basically, you DCR them like the other ones if they're hemodynamic compromised. But if they're not, then you want to use procainamide or ibutilide. These are intravenous um, antiarrhythmic agents that Why can not? convert them to cyanide. Why can't I use beta blockers or digoxin or adenosine? So if you use any of these, they actually block the AV node more, and then it's more likely to go straight down the... Uh, everything is conducted straight from the atria to the ventricle, mm-hmm. and then they get ventricular fibrillation. It's bad juju, bro. All right. Uh, and the last one, heart failure is probably, there's two more. Um, heart failure is probably one of the most important ones. You'll see heart failure in AF all the time. Um, calcium channel blockers, so the verapamildiltiazone plus heart failure in AF, is a worse mortality in that. So you don't ever use those, really, if you can avoid them. Um, you use a beta blocker instead. Um, but if they have heart failure with a preserved ejection fraction, it's probably okay to use a calcium channel blocker. So that's um, even in the acute setting you're saying. I know like chronically we don't like calcium channel blockers, but even acutely avoid sh- it. should yeah. avoid a calcium channel blocker if yeah. you can. Yep. Um, you can carefully use a beta blocker if someone's acutely decompensated, so they've got pulmonary edema or they've got edema generally. Um, you can carefully use a beta blocker, but of course it's a negative inotrope, so you just got to watch out for hypertension or congestion. So it's the same as just any heart failure, right? It's that low, go slow with beta yeah. blockers. Good in the long run, can be bad in the short run. That's right. Um, digoxin and amiodarone are recommended if you're really struggling and you're, you know, they're becoming hypertensive or congested with the beta blocker. And there's this thing called tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy, and basically someone who's going fast all the time, it messes up the heart, and they they essentially look like they've just got bad heart failure. But usually if you give them, if you rate control them, you check them again three months later on echo, it'll largely resolve. And so just keep an eye out for that possibly being the cause of someone's heart failure if they have no other reason to have heart failure aside from the fact they've got AF. Uh, and then the last case is post-cardiac surgery. A lot of research going into this, um, but basically it's routinely treated with a beta, beta blocker for people who develop AF after cardiac surgery, which is very common, as we said. You get this inflammatory... Uh, you touch on the heart, man. Mm, you touch the heart, you set it off, it goes crazy, uh, and you can give them a beta blocker, and you can also treat it with amiodarone prophylactically before the surgery and see if you can reduce their rate of AF, which does work, and you can also use colchicine postoperatively. Now, that's, I think, still being researched, but the, and there's a trial going on at Monash where there's, it reduces your AF incidence after cardiac surgery. Oof. 
Oh, oh. That was monstrous. Yeah, 53 minutes monstrous. of atrials going straight to you. What, what would you say would be the take-home messages? Let's just quickly whip through them. Take-home message is that atrial fibrillation is an irregular, irregular rhythm that spawns from the atria um, and involves completely disorganized uh, atrial activity. And atrial flutter is a big re-entrant circuit, a bit like a racetrack in the atrium. That I wanted to remind people of those three pathophysiology Factors. So this is something I think about in every patient. Is this mainly electrical? Is it mainly structural? Or is it mainly underlying predisposing associated conditions? And or is it all three? Or is it all three? So that, that kind of really helps um, direct your management and characterize the AF. And uh, this is one of the other things is that rhythm and rate control are pretty similar for AF. Um, so Mortality-wise. Mortality-wise. So and, and to keep someone on anticoagulation regardless of whether you go for a rhythm or rate control strategy. I think those are some important pearls. Thank Chad Pascal. Chad Pascal <laughs> as well. Let's uh, do the whole podcast again. Rahul is tired. <laughs> All right. See you later, guys. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.